Well, I invite you to open the Word of God this morning and turn with me to Romans chapter 2. Romans chapter 2. The portrait of the creature, apart from the grace of God, we learned last week, is absolutely devastating. All creatures, as we have learned in recent weeks, stand condemned before God, both the Jew and the Gentile. Paul makes this abundantly plain and clear in Romans chapter 2 verse 12, if you would read that with me. For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law, namely Gentiles. And all who have sinned under the law, namely Jews, will be judged by the law. That is to say, all creatures are not only condemned and guilty before God, they are also accountable before Almighty God. Also in Romans 2, verses 15 and 16, Paul says, They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. On that day, when according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. Simply put, there will be an appointed day when every person will give an account to God. There will be an appointed judgment when all our secrets, all our motivations, and all our activities will Come into the light. There will be an appointed judge who will announce, who will decree the eternal destinies of all creatures, both Jews as well as Gentiles. Now, Paul the Apostle anticipates, I believe, a response from his Jewish readers, a response that is anything but sympathetic to his argument. In Romans chapter 2, verses 12 to 16, the section of Scripture that we reviewed and studied last week. Now, here we are, a, a group of believers, and some of you are unbelievers. Most of you are Gentiles. A few of you might be Jews. I actually talked to someone a few days ago who said he does have a little bit of Jewish blood in him. I was excited to hear that. I always enjoy meeting Jewish people. But we have here in our congregation a mix of people. And we can all relate, I think, to the typical Jewish objections to Paul at this point. You see, the Jews, as we have learned, have historically banked on their lineage. They have banked on their family tree. They have, I'll put it this way, they have cashed all their chips on their family tree. After all, they are, help me, they're Jews. They are Jews. And They have a father whose name is Abraham. These are the individuals. These are the the special individuals that God set his affection on. They were marked out by God. They were the special people of God. They were chosen by God among all the nations. 
God did not choose the Babylonians. He did not choose the Hittites. He didn't choose any other group with the exception of the Israelites. But the Jews aren't the only ones who will respond negatively to Paul's teaching in verses 12 to 16. I believe that the vast majority of us who are Gentiles now, we all relate to the typical Jewish objection. And we say things like this. I'll put this in the first person as if I'm talking about myself, but I'm really talking about you and me. These are some of the things that we say. We may not admit that we would say them, but deep down, they're like a a reservoir bubbling in our hearts. We say things like this, or we think things like this. After all, I am a good person. I am a a moral man. I am a moral woman. I, this this is one that I hear more often than you might imagine. I try hard. I've had people tell me in sessions prior to baptism that the reason that they're Christians is that they try hard. Now, my responsibility as a pastor is to lovingly, And gently embrace such a person and tell that person that 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 is is the furthest thing away from the biblical gospel. It's my privilege at that point to share the gospel of grace with them. And thankfully the reception has been very, very fruitful. Other things that we have a proclivity to say or think, "I I put money in the offering plate. I put money in the offering plate. I play by the rules. I have to confess this to you. This is something that I say a lot inwardly. Maybe some of you are like me where you play by the rules and you see everyone else around you cheating and they seem to reap the benefits. Does that irritate any one of you? And so I say that a lot. Hey, listen, I'm playing by the rules. Hey, I I drive the speed limit. Hey, I I pay my taxes. I obey the laws. I'm a good person. Here's one you might say. And this is another one that I have bubbling in my heart. I am orthodox. You see, for me, it's very important to be orthodox. And I trust that you are orthodox. You believe in the, the straight truth. But being orthodox... Won't get you to heaven. Being a good person won't get you to heaven. Putting money in the offering plate won't get you to heaven. Being a faithful church member or a tender will not get you to heaven. And so what we do is we, we try our best to measure up before a holy God. Some of us live our lives that way every day. And that's exactly what the Jewish readers are doing in this passage. They're banking on their family tree. They're banking on who they are. They're banking on who their father is, namely Abraham. And they're banking on what they will accomplish before a holy God. I want to have you turn, if you're not already there, to Romans 2, beginning in verse 17. And we're going to do something very unique this morning. I don't want you to get used to this, but we're going to read and... We're we're trusting that the Lord will give me the ability to get through this. We're going to go all the way to verse 29. It may never happen again. 
<laughs> because, because as I studied this passage, I just felt like verses 17 to 29, it was really a, a unit of thought that I, I didn't feel the freedom to break up. Now, what's going to happen is when we get to Romans 3, verses 1 to 7, I was going to preach that next week, and we're not even going to get through verse 1. And so we're back to our old ways. And so for now, would you stand with me for the reading of God's word, beginning in verse 17. This is the authoritative, infallible, inerrant word of the living God. Paul the Apostle, writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, says, But if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God and know his will and approve what is excellent, because you are instructed from the law, and you are sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth, you then... Who teach others, do you not teach yourself? While you preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? Do you who abhor idols, do you rob temples? Do you who boast in the law dishonor God by breaking the law? For it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. For circumcision indeed is of value if you obey the law. But if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. So if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? Then he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you who have the written code and circumcision but break the law. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart by the spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. May God bless the reading of his word. Let's pray together. Father, what a joy it is to open the word of God. We thank you for Uh, This book that Paul penned to the believers in Rome. Thank you for the many lessons that we have learned and look forward to many, many months of of studying this book together. May we never grow weary of opening your book. May we never grow weary of meditating on your precepts. Lord, I pray that you'd help us to see what's happening in this this packed piece of of, uh, literature. Lord, I pray that you'd help us to see the the lessons that emerge in sacred scripture. That you would be honored as we work hard to uncover these important lessons. And that your people would be served well. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Now the title of the message this morning is The Deadly Danger of Moralism. And I'm not going to have you raise your hand. But my suspicion would be if I asked you how many of you would say, I have no idea what this passage is talking about. That some of you would say, wow, like what a mouthful. All the the language and the arguments that we see here. I want to begin by saying this, that Jews and Gentiles have a common problem, as we've already alluded to. Each of these people groups bank their chips on what they can do to merit favor with God. And so this morning, I want you to see three headings, all headings that will help to serve the purpose of of bringing home the main message of the deadly danger of moralism. 
The first heading is found in verses 17 to 20. We'll entitle this, The Claim. The Claim. The claim of the Jews is this. uh, We are the Jews. We are the Jews. You can see that very plainly in this passage if you go back to verse 17. And you, you can almost hear the Apostle Paul talking, communicating to them in verse 17 when he says, But if you call yourself a Jew, dot, dot, dot. They call themselves Jews, therefore the implication is that I can never be placed under the wrath of God. Because I'm a Jew, I will never face the fiery judgment of God. After all, we are the... You're getting it. Because we're the Jews, we don't stand condemned. Because we're the Jews, we're not going to face the wrath of God. We are the people of the book. And don't you forget, Paul, we are the ones who God set his affection on. We are the people that God chose. And so they bank their chips once again on their family line. Look once again, you can see this on the screen in verse 17. But if you call yourself a Jew, or in the first person, we call ourselves Jews. The phrase that got my attention was that little word that is highlighted, the word call. It comes from a Greek word that can be translated as to assign a person or a people group a title. It's as if you said, I am the governor of Louisiana. Or I am the mayor of Billings, Montana. I am a Jew. It's a self-designated title. We call ourselves Jews. Our father is Abraham. We have been handpicked by the living God. Now, verses 17 to 24, Paul spells out the the Jewish uh, response. And it goes something like this. Verse 17. I'll put this once again in the first person. The Jewish individual would say in verse 17, I rely on the law. As a Jew, I rely on the law. Verse 17 also, I boast in God. If you stop right there and I were to ask you, how does that sound? Does that sound pretty good? That sounds pretty good. I rely on the law of God. My boast is in God. Verse 18, I know the will of God. Verse 18 also, I know the most excellent way because we have been instructed from the law. Verse 19, I am convinced that we are guides to the blind, that is the Gentiles. Also in verse 19, I am a light to those who are in darkness. Verses 23 to 24, I am an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth. I am a Jew. Period. Do you see, built into these responses, the deadly danger of moralism? Do you see it? Everything is linked to the original claim that Paul highlights in verse 17. I call myself a Jew. Now, because one of the things that I have been uh, received instruction in over the years from my seminary professors is there is a thing that runs through every sermon and it's the section entitled Raising Need. 
And it's very important for you because if you don't see the need, then you're probably not going to be interested. If, if I brought a lesson this morning on, on nuclear physics, most of you would not be all that interested. Maybe a few of you. But knowing that I would have no idea what I'm talking about, now none of you would be interested. And so there's a section entitled Raising Need. Well, we have a group full of 99.99% Gentiles. And here I'm talking about the Jews. And so how can I raise need at this point? Since everything is linked to the original claim, I call myself a Jew. Where the need becomes very apparent is right here. And that is that all of these responses from the typical Jew are the responses that all of you and me give as well. We have the same inclination for self-protection. We have the same inclination to defend ourselves, not necessarily on the basis of our lineage, but on the basis of who I am and what I can accomplish. I, I love what my friend Randy Winter said a few days ago when we discussed this in Ironman. I'll never forget it. Randy said, we want our pound of flesh. That is to say, I want credit. I want glory. You can even go so far to say it like this, for the, the robustly orthodox churchman or churchwoman or young person. I believe that salvation is of the Lord. 99.9% is of him, but I want one notch in my belt because I believed. There's something in me. And when we come face to face with that proclivity, that propensity to want our pound of flesh or even our ounce of flesh, we run into the deadly danger of moralism. Oh, how we need to remember our status before the God of the universe. Isaiah 64 verse 6. We have all become like one who is unclean. Lord, apart from your grace, I am unclean. And all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. Lord, I live in Whatcom County, and I am a self-made man, but I've realized that I am not a self-made man. I am a man whose righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. We all fade like a leaf and our iniquities like the wind take us away. And so as this first heading is called the claim and the Jews call themselves the Jews, that self-designated title, our only rightful claim, the rightful claim of every Gentile and the rightful claim of every Jew is only this. We are great sinners. That's our only claim. Move with me then from the claim to the challenge that begins in verse 21. Let me read it for you. Verses 21 to 24. Paul says, And then you who teach others, do you not teach yourself? Can you, can you hear this hint of sarcasm and admonishment in Paul? You who teach others, do you not teach yourself? While you preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? 
You who boast in the law dishonor God by breaking the law, for it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. This is what I refer to as the the charge of hypocrisy. This is the challenge that Paul charges his Jewish kinsmen of the sin of hypocrisy. And there are two specific charges that I see here. And the first is devastating. It's a failing to apply the truth of God's word personally. You see, the hypocrite is an expert in teaching others, but he never teaches himself. Have you ever known that kind of hypocrite? He's the person who's always pointing the finger and he never thinks about himself. The hypocrite is a master of admonishing other people, but the word of God never touches his heart. I can tell you about people that I've met over the years who would consider themselves to be accomplished theologians. They are robustly orthodox. They have studied the word of God. They understand theological terminology. They have more degrees than Fahrenheit. They could even tell you the, the origins of a, of a given historical do, uh, doctrine. They can help you understand the origins of the doctrine of the Trinity. They can help you walk through Christological arguments. They can tell you about the Holy Spirit. They can tell you about the doctrines of grace. They know it all. But their fatal mistake is that they, like the Jews, fail to apply the truth personally. They fail to apply what they know in their own lives. They are eager to exhort all the other people, but they stop short of exhorting themselves. There's a definition for such a person. This person is a hypocrite. They find great delight in pointing a bony, judgmental finger at other sinners, but they fail to see that the same sin has polluted their hearts. These are individuals who fail to apply the truth personally. But there's a second charge that Paul levies, and it's devastating. He says they not only fail to apply the truth personally, but they fail to practice the truth. While you preach against stealing, do you steal? While you preach against adultery, do you commit adultery? I can just imagine as a, as a Jewish individual is reading these words, the sweat begins to pour from his forehead because he is one who has stolen. He is one who has committed adultery. Paul goes on, while you preach against idolatry, are you captivated by idols? You boast in the law, but you dishonor God by breaking the law. And so Paul says you fail to apply the truth in a personal way, and you fail to practice the truth at all. This is the charge of hypocrisy. But move also to, to see hypocrisy unmasked. And I want to ask, what in the world is hypocrisy? Well, one of the greatest definitions I've ever heard of hypocrisy is a hypocrite is a pretender. A hypocrite is a, a stage actor. And you've seen the plays where, where someone will come onto the platform and hold that mask in front of their face. And that's not the real person. This is the real person. But they put the mask in front of their face. And that's the definition now of a hypocrite. It's a person who pretends to be a certain way. But acts and believes the opposite. 
Martin Lloyd-Jones says this, A hypocrite is one who tends to take only a general and theoretical intellectual interest in the truth. Close quote. A hypocrite is filled with pride and rejects the path of humility. A hypocrite, simply put, is, is full of himself. A hypocrite never has the need for the inward look. He never has the need to do what Paul says is to examine yourself to see if you are in the faith. He is so confident of his abilities and his standing before God that self-examination for the hypocrite is an utter waste of time. Why are we warned about the sin of hypocrisy? There are several things I would commend to you. One is hypocrisy blinds our eyes to the word of God. A hypocrite can be orthodox and theologically astute, but can open the word of God and fail to see it. He sees the words, but he doesn't see the underlying reality. His eyes are blinded to the word of God. His eyes are blinded to the truth. But hypocrisy goes further. Hypocrisy blinds our eyes to God himself. Hypocrisy blinds our eyes to God himself. And then finally, hypocrisy blasphemes the living God. Verse 24, Paul says to his Jewish kinsmen, For as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles Because of you, you who say do not steal, you steal. You who say do not commit adultery, but you commit adultery. Great damage is done in the church when we preach a message, but we fail to live that message out before the watching world. Hypocrisy turns others away from the truth. And when they turn from the truth, they turn from the gospel. And when they turn away from the gospel, they turn away from God. Now, the hypocrisy, I believe, in this passage is super easy to detect. On the first reading of this passage, especially all the way to verse 24, you can see the hypocrisy in these Jewish readers. But my question is this, for you who are Gentiles, the vast majority of you, Is there any hypocrisy in your life? Are you personally applying the truth of God's word to your life? This morning, Ken made reference to Iron Man. And I'm glad he had a good time because I had a really good time as well. And I hope we're not the only ones. But I I sense that something was happening this morning. And we're talking about temptation, ladies. We're talking about sin, ladies. And we're talking about what it means to be a, a man of God. And I think we have a group of men, myself included, who all desire to be God's men. Amen? And we we will stumble, and wives, your your husband will stumble. Uh, Wives, your your husband will fall. Your, Your husband will make mistakes. Your husband will commit sin. But he is committed to always running back to the cross. He is committed to walking in the path of wisdom. He is committed to walking in in, in a way that would honor the living God. And so I'm excited about this group of men. I'm excited about this group of men who has a passion to obey the Lord Jesus Christ. And so I would ask for all of us, are, are you personally applying the truth of God's word to your life? Are you walking the talk? 
Do you practice what you preach or are you merely a hypocrite? And we have seen how the, the deadly danger of moralism has crushed every argument that the Jewish objector brings to the table thus far. He has attempted to bolster his position before God by first banking on his family tree. He has failed to apply the truth of God's word. He has failed to practice the truth of God's word. And he has been duly challenged by the Apostle Paul. And the sweat now is on his brow. But it's interesting. You would think after all that admonishment of the Apostle saying, Do you steal? Do you commit adultery? Are you an idol worshiper? Are you blaspheming the living God? You would think that the, that the Jewish response would be, I give up, Paul. You got me. I mean, wouldn't, wouldn't that be you? You're just like, you just nailed me. I, I'm a hypocrite. And I, I realize I need to repent. But the, 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 the Jewish person in this instance, he doesn't do that. What does he do? Move with me now from the claim to the challenge to the criteria, finally. In verses 25 to 29, we come face to face with the criteria. That is what I refer to as the last line of defense. This is the last line of defense for the Jew. That's my phrase, but I like Martin Lloyd-Jones a lot better. He calls this the final bastion. Like, he has realized that, that Paul's got him by, by the neck. He's got him by the scruff. He has called him on his hypocrisy. But he has one final trump card to play. And it's an interesting one. Verses 25 to 29. The first trump card he plays. I should say there's not only one. There's three in three statements. He says, number one, we have been set apart by the right of circumcision. Can't you just see Paul going, oh, are I, I can just see Paul going, are you serious? Are you kidding me? I just pulled the rug out from under your Jewish feet. I've just la- labeled you as a hypocrite. And now you're going to say we have been set apart by the right of circumcision. Please remember that as a part of the covenant that God established with Abraham in Genesis chapter 17, every male living with Abraham was to be circumcised. In this way, the covenant was in their flesh, as one writer says. In addition, every newborn male was circumcised on the eighth day, Genesis 17, 12. And circumcision, bottom line, was a sign of God's covenant and the blessing it brings. Any Israelite male who was not circumcised was to be cut off from the kin of his father for breaking the covenant of God. One writer says those outside the covenant were described as the uncircumcised. This is not a term of endearment. And so I'll just contextualize it for our culture. If a group of boys was was playing on the playground and there was this lawless person over here, they would refer to him as the uncircumcised one. That is, you are a rebel. That is, you are godless. You are a wicked enemy of God. Goliath and all the Philistines are described as what? uncircumcised. This is not a term of endearment to be called or to be labeled as 
the uncircumcised. And so here is the first argument or the final bastion, as Lloyd-Jones says. We have been set apart by the right of circumcision. In my own words, we're good. We got this. We're cool. Everything's okay. Don't worry about it. We're fine. There's a second argument that we see in these verses that essentially says this. Since we have been circumcised, we are right with God. And then finally, since we have been circumcised, we will never face the judgment of God. And I can just see Paul going, oh, when am I going to get through to these people? It's kind of like a pastor on Sunday morning. When am I going to get through to these people? Read it with me. Verse 25. For circumcision indeed is a value if you obey the law. But if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. We're going to see next week more responses from the Jews to Paul's argument. Verse 26. So if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? Then he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you who have the the written code and circumcision but break the law. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart by the spirit, not by the letter His praise is not for man, but from God. And so Paul responds with a rebuttal. You might call this cross-examination. And he provides three statements here. Number one, he says in in, in essence that circumcision is beneficial, but it has no inherent value in and of itself. Lloyd-Jones is helpful once again. He says, circumcision proclaims that you are the people of God. Yes, but only on the condition that you are really one of God's people in, in in a true and in a vital sense. Namely, here's the key, that you are a holy people. For God is holy and his people are holy. It's like the professing Christian that says, I signed the card at Camp Gilead when I was seven years old. I'm good. At that point, that becomes his quote-unquote circumcision. I'm good. But if you refuse to live a holy life, if you refuse to, to walk in the path of wisdom, if you refuse to be a man or a woman or a young man or a young woman of God, Paul says, you've got it all mixed up. Circumcision is beneficial, but it has no inherent value in and of itself. Number two, if you do not keep the law, and this, this must have blown his objectors away. If you don't keep the law, you might as well be uncircumcised. I can see the circumcised male going, it's a little late. It's a little late. Thanks, Paul. But the truth is there. Since if you don't keep the law, you might as well be uncircumcised. Finally, and I believe this is the key. Paul says radical heart transformation is a miracle of the spirit of God. Not a result of something we can do. You can hear the Jewish argument. My father is Abraham. I am a Jew. 
I am chosen by God. There's a key word here, and it's the word I. I did this. I did that. This is my status. I, I, I. But Paul teaches here that radical heart transformation is a miracle of God, not a result of something you can do. And so heart transformation has nothing to do for the Jew and his family tree or what he can accomplish. As I studied this section of scripture, I thought, as I often do, about the first two rows. And I thought that children and teens who who grow up in the church make the same mistake as these Jewish objectors. These self-righteous Jews. What do they do? And I trust this is not true of anyone at Christ Fellowship, but it is very, is very prominent all around our country. That children and young people, they bank on the fact that they were baptized. They bank on the fact that they were confirmed. They bank on the fact that they were catechized. They bank on the fact that they were dedicated. They bank on the fact that my mom and dad are Christians. They bank on the fact that my dad is an elder or my dad is a deacon. I come from a good Christian family. And so ultimately, they bank on being good. It's as if they're saying, my father is Abraham. They just say it in a different way. They bank on their devotion. I read my Bible. I put a little money in the plate. I am a good Christian. And so young people, please recognize this as the deadly danger of moralism. I believe that we, and I've talked to some of you about this, that we live in a community. That in Whatcom County, our community is plagued and crippled by this deadly danger. And it's not just Linden. It's Linden. Because I know what some of you are thinking. All you Everson Nooksack people are going, yeah, those self-righteous Linden people. It's Linden. It's Sumas. Sorry. It's Everson. It's Nooksack. It's Bellingham. It's Mount Vernon. It's Seattle. Should I go further? So it's not just Whatcom County. It's, it's everywhere all around the world. We are plagued. By this deadly danger, the deadly danger of moralism, it plagues the human race. I want to close with some final lessons and learn the same lesson that I believe that Paul spells out in this section of Scripture. There are three lessons that I can see. First, please remember that apart from the gospel, we all stand as guilty and condemned. One writer says it like this, The whole world is guilty before God. There is no difference between the Jew and the Gentile. All are equally lost. Wouldn't that be interesting to say that to a Jewish person, an unbelieving Jewish person in our culture, to look at Joseph in the eye, to look at David in the eye, to look at a Moses in the eye. To look at, use any, any name from the Old Testament that you can come up with. That you are lost apart from the grace of God that is found in the Lord Jesus Christ. Number two, banking on our heritage, our knowledge of the Bible, or our works are all dead-end paths. 
They all stink to high heaven as moralism. Number three, and this is where the rubber meets the road once again, that heart transformation begins and ends with God. It's not what you do that makes you right with God. It's what God does in you. John chapter 6 verse 63. It is the spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. Some of you remember how Martin Luther commented on that little verse. He said nothing is not a little something. That's Randy's pound of flesh. Actually, that's the little Six ounces of flesh. Nothing is not a little something. See, we need the righteousness of another. We need what Luther called alien righteousness. I always love that. We need alien righteousness that comes from the Lord Jesus Christ because we need to be saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And so instead of banking on our works, what the scripture refers to as filthy rags, we need to bank On the works of another. And his name is the Lord Jesus Christ. What has the power. To transform. The sinful human heart. The only thing that can transform. These kinds of hearts. Is the gospel. Of the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm so thankful. That we are seeing a a gospel centered culture. That is beginning to percolate up here at Christ Fellowship. And it's happening with young women. And it's happening with young men. And it's happening with young people and teenagers. It's happening in youth group. It's happening with, with families. It's happening with seniors. It's happening all around where people are developing a thirst for the gospel. And they're realizing that I don't have anything to bring to the table. I have nothing to offer. And as I concluded my study on this section of scripture, and this will happen from time to time, a a hymn, Jason, just just popped into my head. And it was way too late for me to contact Jason and say, can we do this hymn? But this is the hymn that just kept reverberating through my mind. It says something like this. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus Christ, my righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. On Christ the solid rock I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. But the Jew says, I've been circumcised. No. All other ground is sinking sand. His oath, his covenant, his blood support me in the whelming flood when all around my soul gives way and then is all my hope and stay. On Christ the solid rock I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. But my father is Abraham. The hymn writer says all other ground is sinking sand. When he shall come with trumpet sound. Oh may I then in him be found. In him my righteousness alone. Faultless to stand before the throne. On Christ the solid rock I stand. But the Gentile says I am a good person. I am a self-made man. I believed. The hymn writer responds, all other ground is sinking sand. For it's on Christ, the solid rock, I stand. My friends, have you found refuge on the shores of the celestial city where Christ died and gave himself for the sins of every person who would ever believe? 
This probably isn't the most articulate and thought-provoking thing I could ever say, but I I just want to tell you that I I am having a blast preaching through the book of Romans. I just hope I live long enough to get all the way through it. What 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 a pleasure it is, and I hope you live long enough to get all the way through it. And so, may I commend you for your attention. I, I can see the, the sparkle in your eyes, and I can see some of you leaning forward. One of the young people said, I never miss a note. That's pretty encouraging. And so, may God continue to conform us into the image of the Lord Jesus Christ by his grace and for his glory. Let's pray. So, Father, thank you for, for these lessons this morning. Thank you for reminding us that Uh, Deep down in the recesses of our heart, we are all legalists. We all think that there is something that that we can do to merit favor in the eyes of a holy God. There's there's something within us that makes us believe that, that we can accomplish something. And we want to get credit for our salvation. So just continue to remind us, God, of the necessity of free grace. Remind us of the necessity and the, the beauty of free grace. Thank you for the gospel. Thank you, Jesus, for saving this, your people. And thank you for growing us deeply in the soil of God's grace. And all God's people said, amen and amen.